Well, it was 1969. Uh, I was nine years old, and I was in Mrs. Kruger's fourth grade class in Kantner Elementary School there in East Detroit, Michigan, where I grew up. And, uh, and I remember this day very distinctly. Here now, I'm, what, 58 years old almost, and so many, many years later, I have a, a very profound memory of this particular day. And, and on this day, Mrs. Kruger, now I was sitting in the middle of the class, I think the second seat from the front um, of one of the rows. And, and she said, today we're gonna do something different. We're gonna study the Bible as literature. Now, this wasn't a Christian school. This was a public school, which I would say some things have changed since then, wouldn't you? Um, so, uh, all right, I'll go along with it. And so she passed out Bibles, and she told us what page number to turn to. And the particular passage that she had us reading on that day was the passage found in Exodus chapter 3. And it was the story of Moses and the burning bush where God revealed himself to Moses. In that passage... Moses asks God, who are you? Because God commissions him with this really big job. He is sending Moses to take on the most powerful man in the known world at the time, the most powerful nation, the nation of Egypt, that had enslaved God's people, and he was going to use Moses to deliver them. And so Moses said, if I'm going to go do this, I need to know who you are. And who shall I say has sent me? And God's response was this. He says, I am who I am. Tell them. I am has sent you. And all I can tell you is when I read those words, I have a distinct memory of just my heart just feeling so full and so overjoyed. Somehow, this little nine-year-old boy, the best of my ability, I understood that God is real. I understood this kind of sense that God claims himself to be I am, the one with no beginning, the one with no end, the God of all time, the God of eternity. And my heart just overfilled with, with joy, and I had this such profound memory of that moment. It was truly a, a, a great step in my journey in getting to know God as he revealed himself to me, to this little boy, through the scriptures. Now... Uh, when I got off to college, uh, the, the trajectory didn't go the same way. I walked away from the Lord in my college years. And uh, fortunately, it was my junior year that the Lord brought me back. And, and I really decided if I'm going to claim to be a Christ follower, I'm, I'm not going to do it in the closet. I'm just going to stand up for God and, and I'm going to go for it. And when I did, I realized what we were up against especially in this very secular university setting that I was in, which tends to have a preponderance of people that are agnostic or atheistic in their worldview. And so there was constant scathing attacks that we would face just as a routine thing that came up in class from the professors. Scathing attacks against the scriptures, and it basically left one with the idea that if you were going to be someone who believed in the God of the Bible— you kind of had to check your brain at the door. That's kind of the, the message that you got. And so for me, um, it, it really became another crisis that I had to go through. Now the tragedy is, is that I think a lot of people hear that sort of thing in our culture today, and it causes them to not investigate the Bible for themselves. And for those of us who claim to be Christ followers, um, what ends up happening, especially with the Old Testament, I've found, um, is that it kind of gets us 
kind of shying away a little bit. And so in this 280 character social media world that we live in, it doesn't take much, does it? Uh, but someone throws some bad PR out there and then everybody kind of jumps on the bandwagon. And, and I think this is one of the challenges we have today. And so if you're a follower of Christ um, and you've probably know exactly what I'm talking about, but some of you are here tonight because you're checking it out for the first time. And let me just commend you and say, way to go. And we want this to be a really safe place for you to come and take as long as you need, but, but not any longer than necessary in your quest to get your questions answered. And so we're just really, really glad you're here. But if you know anything, uh, uh, even a little bit about the Bible, you got to admit, there's some pretty strange things in there. There's some pretty uh, uh, amazing statements. I mean, we see an iron axe head floating down a river in one of the stories. Uh, we see things like uh, a day when the sun stood still. Uh, we see pairs of animals showing up out of nowhere to board a ship. We see a man um, who doesn't die, but is taken up into the heavens on chariots of fire. And those of us who grew up in the church, we just kind of go along with this. Oh, okay, yeah, like it's normal. But if you're from outside the church and you're reading that stuff for the first time, it's like, whoa, <laughs> yeah, what, what's this all about? And on top of, of it all, we see God act in ways that just don't seem to add up. He's not acting the way that we think he should be, at least, the way that we would want him to. And so when we see the God of the Old Testament, he seems to come across as a God of judgment, a God of fire, a God of brimstone. And then he sort of goes through this personality metamorphosis and he becomes the God of grace and love and mercy in the New Testament. And so what's that all about? And so there's some tension that we feel. Uh, and, and rightly so. You're not going crazy if you've noticed these things or if you feel these things. It leaves us at times asking ourselves, then how do I relate to the Bible? And, and more specifically, the, the scriptures of the Old Testament. And so for many, I, I just know that they decide I'm just going to kind of ignore it. I'm going to kind of just turn a blind eye. I'll avoid it altogether. Maybe I might dabble in it. Or perhaps you've done this, as, as I've done this before. You find yourself doing what I call uh, is Bible roulette. Uh, you have a, have a question for God, and so you open your Bible, and you point magic eight ball style to, you know, a verse, and you read the verse, uh, and the problem is, more often than not, when I read that verse, it might say things like, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk, and it's like, what? <laughs> really? Uh, why not? I mean, <laughs> does the goat care? I don't you know. What's going on here, God? And God, what does this have to do with whether or not I'm supposed to switch jobs. I mean, that was the question I brought to you, God, tonight. All right, and so we, we can get into these patterns. So with these bizarre statements, with these things that are hard to understand, with people outside of the church kind of being very critical, and so many in the church being confused, it creates a crisis for us of sorts. For me, there in college, I had to ask myself, what do I believe? Can I really trust the scripture? Did God superintend the writing of this book or is it a hoax? Is Jesus for real or is he a fairy tale? How can I know for sure the answer to these questions? So today we're going to look at a passage where a couple of the followers of Jesus were in a similar season, in a similar situation, in a similar crisis of their faith. They were discouraged, disillusioned, depressed, 
They were deeply confused. And may I add another D word? They were almost decimated. I mean, it was really a tough time for them. Everything they thought they knew about God, everything they thought they knew about the scriptures, everything that they had believed about Jesus came crashing down on a cross two days before. We're going to read the story of Emmaus, where Jesus encounters the risen Savior, comes along and encounters two of his followers on a walk that they're taking. And so before we read that passage together, here's the situation. The setting of the passage is it's the afternoon of Easter Sunday. And it has just been a tumultuous week with super highs and unbelievable lows. In the beginning of the week, Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on the back of a colt on a donkey, fulfilling biblical prophecy, coming in through the Golden Gate. And the people were laying down palms, singing his praises, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were celebrating him as Messiah King coming to be enthroned. On Tuesday, he goes into the temple and he cleanses out the temple, driving out the money changers, saying, you've taken my father's house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. And then we see him arrested tragically in the garden Thursday evening in the three illegal trials that happened that evening and into the morning, Friday morning. And he's then turned over to the Roman government where he is tortured and later that afternoon is crucified. And the world comes crashing down. So let's read together in Luke chapter 24, uh, starting in verse 13. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. Uh, if not, we've provided a bulletin with a passage that you can read along with me. Let's start in verse 13. Now the same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So back in the day, they didn't have cars, they didn't have bikes, they could ride on a donkey, but most of the time they walked. And this walk would be approximately going from the executive airport walking down to the international airport. And at the pace they went, it would probably take two to three hours, probably closer to three. Verse 14, when they were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, the way this is... Uh, written in the Greek. It wasn't a passive thing. It was something actively that Jesus was doing. We don't know how. We don't know in what manner that he kept himself from being recognized, but he was purposefully not allowing them to recognize him because they knew him. They were in relationship with him. But in this particular instance, they didn't recognize it as Jesus. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? I just love this, the interaction that he has with them. And they stood still, their faces downcast. They stopped in their tracks. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? I mean, this was a big thing going on. The whole town is abuzz talking about all these events. And Jesus asked, What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, the third day since all of this took place. Do you notice their language here? This is really, really telling as to what's going on. We had hoped 
that he would be the one who had redeemed Israel. He was a prophet. They're speaking in all past tense terms. They knew him to be dead. They didn't say that he was the Messiah. They had hoped he would be the Messiah. Now they called him a prophet, and indeed he was a prophet because Moses said, after me, a prophet will come who is greater than I. He wasn't less than a prophet, but he was a prophet. But he was more, and they couldn't bring themselves any longer to be there. And the reason why, there was no place in their theology for a dead Messiah. You see, what they had believed and what they had taught, even though they had read the scriptures their entire lives, they were expecting Moses part two. They were expecting like Moses took on Pharaoh and established the government, uh, the freedom of Israel. They were redeemed from slavery and became their own free people in flesh and blood in real time in history. That's exactly what they all were expecting. And no matter how many times Jesus told them otherwise, they just didn't get it. They were so locked in to what they already were expecting. They couldn't see what God was doing. And so we continue on. Verse 22. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen visions of angels who said he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the woman had said, but they did not see. They still, even though Jesus told them plainly that he was going to die and rise again, it wasn't computing. Now, I want you to notice something that, that before we continue on here with this passage that I think is really, really important that we get. I, I want you to notice, uh, because I think it's really instructive for us. Um, Jesus is choosing to reveal his, himself to these guys in a specific way. He did not allow it to happen visually. He was keeping them from seeing who he was. However, he chose to do that. All right? But he was doing this through their hearing. And more specifically, through the scriptures, as we will see. All right, and so let me just read to you what comes next and how he reveals himself. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to him, uh, to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Do you see what he's doing? He took them on a survey of the entire Old Testament. The Jewish Bible was broken up into three sections. There was Moses, which was the first five books uh, of the uh, Old Testament, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then were the writings of uh, the Jewish Bible, and those began with the Psalms, and those were the wisdom literature and the historical literature, and then the section of the prophets. And so Jesus took them from the beginning of Moses all the way through the prophets, showing them what the scriptures taught about him and what the Messiah would need to suffer. Do you see how Jesus chose to reveal himself? He revealed himself through words, in particular through the scripture. And I think this is really important because this is consistent with what Paul says in Romans chapter 10 when he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
Now, what he covered on that road, what went on in that conversation, uh, I, I can't tell you everything. Obviously, I wasn't there, but oh, what I would give to be there. <laughs> this, to me, is probably one of the most uh, fascinating episodes, and I would have just loved to have been a part of that lesson. Now, uh, I can't tell you exactly what he said, but I think we've got a good idea. And, and so when I first prepared this message, I had uh, at least 30 examples of the kinds of things that he may have went through. It ended up being four pages, and I realized that's just way too much. Um, so I can't do that. But I'm going to give you a taste. I'm going to give you a little bit of some of the things that, that he could have gone through. And so let's go. I imagine that he began probably with uh, Genesis chapter 3. Remember the prediction that God said that Adam's seed uh, would uh, basically be born to a woman and eventually crush the head of the serpent who is Satan. And Jesus would tell them, that's me. I am that seed. Genesis 22 is certainly a powerful passage, and it's the passage where Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his only son. And it was something that was just very, very heart-wrenching in his love for God. He was going to take this step of obedience, but God provides a sacrificial ram that typifies Christ. But it's also interesting to note that this is the first time in all of the Bible that the word is love is used, and it's used to describe a father who's asked to sacrifice his son. And so we see that parallel in Genesis 22. He likely covered Exodus 12, where the idea of the Passover lamb was introduced to the nation of Israel. And then in sacrificing this lamb, their sins could be covered and they could be um, passed over from the judgment of God in that particular evening. And so their sins were covered. I'm sure he took them through the various sacrifices, the layout of the temple, the day of atonement, the most holy day in the nation of Israel, Yom Kippur, saying all of these point to him. All of these point to the work that he would do at Calvary. I'm sure that he also included Numbers 21, and I know this because he taught this in John chapter 3, that he was the one that being lifted up would allow Israel to, not, uh, to escape from their sins, to not be judged for their sins. He went to Psalm 2, 16 and 22, because in these Psalms, we have a very precise and amazingly clear description of the crucifixion. And on and on he went for three hours at least as they walked together on this road. Oh, how I would have just loved to have been a part of this. Beginning with Moses through all the prophets, he revealed to them what the scriptures said about him. Now, I don't know if heaven's got tapes of what happened back in the day, but if they do, I'm going to go on a week-long binge watching this one over and over and over again when I get there. I mean, this is really fascinating to me, and I love this story. This story illustrates for us the purpose of the scriptures. It tells us why the scriptures were given. The purpose of the scripture is to reveal Jesus to us and so that we can know him we can experience his grace and forgiveness and we can worship him. That's why the scriptures were given. Jesus says this himself in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify about me. The scriptures were given to show us Christ. So the question comes up and came up in Jesus' day then, well, what about the Old Testament then? Is the Old Testament even uh, valid anymore? Do we need it anymore? It's a question that's a good question. 
And Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, he came not to do away with it, but so that it would be done. Do you get that? So that it would be fulfilled. So that it would be completely accomplished. That's what he did. He alone could live out the perfect moral law, sinless. And he alone could fulfill the requirements of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. He fulfilled every jot and tittle of the Old Testament. It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the way we relate to the, question, the Old Testament today is that we relate to the Old Testament looking for Jesus. That's its purpose. It teaches us and it reveals to us his character and thus the character of God. Now, in these two disciples' story on the road to Emmaus, did you notice that Jesus is focusing on the part of the scriptures that were specifically about prophecy? All right, and prophecy, all that means, it means foretelling of what is to come, and it's a divine prediction with total accuracy. So it's God telling us about the future, but for it to be from God, it has to be perfect. It can't be a 50-50 deal, you know, like some of the psychics that are out there that are popular, once in a while they get one right and they get celebrated. Wow, look at what they can do. No, for this to be from God, it's gotta be perfect. 100% accuracy in his predictions. And it was looking closer at prophecy that actually helped me in my college years move from that insecure, uncertain young man struggling with all the things that I was hearing. And I got this quiet confidence and assurance then, uh, that about the Bible, that I could rely on the story of the Bible, that I could believe the story of Jesus. It wasn't just a fairy tale and that my faith was in a real person, a living savior. And what's interesting in that environment, you know what helped me? Mathematics and the science of probability. Interesting. Let me tell you how. About that time, I, I had read something that, that uh, was really, really helpful. And an uh, individual came along and applied the science of probability to prophecy. There's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. That's a staggering number where he would be born, what he would go through, the circumstances, what they would be like. And, and I'd like to read 16 of them to you, and I'll do it really, really quick, okay? So just listen in. Uh, Zach can cover the other ones next week. All right. Here they go. First one, he would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7:14. He'd be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5:2. He'd be born to the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49:10. His ministry would be in Galilee, Isaiah 9:1. He would be a worker of miracles, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. He would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. He would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41, 9. He'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11:12. He would be wounded and bruised for our sins, Isaiah 53, 5. His hands and his feet would be pierced, Psalm 22, 16. That he'd be crucified with thieves, Isaiah 53, 12. His garments would be torn and lots cast for them, Psalm 22. His bones would not be broken, Psalm 34 and Psalm 32. His side would be pierced, Zechariah 12, 10. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, 9. And he would rise from the dead, Psalm 16, 10. These are just 16 of the 300 prophecies that he fulfilled. 
What's the likelihood of one person fulfilling these prophecies? Well, a mathematics professor took it on years ago, and he studied the probability, and many have done since then, the probability of fulfilling these predictions. Now, the guy I'm talking about is Peter Stoner. He is a professor emeritus at Pasadena College and later in Westmont University, and he wrote a book called Science Speaks, where he looks at the odds of just 48 prophecies being fulfilled. He gives a couple of illustrations. The odds of one person fulfilling just eight prophecies, just eight, is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros after it. It's a really big number and a very improbable thing. He illustrates how big this number is. Imagine the state of Texas, it's pretty big, second biggest landmass after Alaska. And if you could fill up the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, and you could mark just one of them, and you threw it in there somewhere and you stirred it all up and you took a guy from Oklahoma, not sure why anybody from Oklahoma would wanna come, but an Oklahoma comes down and you put a blindfold on him and you let him meander around the state of Texas and then reach down into the silver dollars and pick one out. It's the same probability that he'd pick the one you marked, one in eight. All right, he goes on. What about one in 16 prophecies? Well, I just read to you 16 of them that were fulfilled. The probability here is one to the 45th power, or one times 10 to the 45th. That's one with 45 zeros after it. Uh, he illustrated this one. Create a really, really, really big ball, a big sphere. And from the center of that sphere to the first, uh, the edge of the sphere, half of it, is the same distance between us and the sun times 30. So the other side, 93 million miles times 30, 5 billion, 580 million miles. This way, that way, this way, that way. Fill the whole thing with silver dollars. Mark one of those little puppies, however you want. Throw it in there, mix it up. Grab your Oklahoman friend, put the blindfold on him, send him in there, go, go have fun. It's the same probability of him finding that one silver dollar. He went on. What's the chance of one in 48 prophecies? It's one times 10 to the 157th power. Now he gives another, another illustration. I won't belabor the point. It involves electrons. Not sure how the Oklahomans are gonna find that one, uh, but, uh, but it's, it's staggering. It's a statistical fact. Right? God only can be the explanation for predicting the future with such precision, with such accuracy. He is the author of the Bible because the prediction is so precise, it's undeniable. Now, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these were some of the prophets that wrote. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter that when they were writing, they were only getting pieces of it. They didn't see the whole picture. And they longed to put the puzzle together, but they didn't have the whole puzzle, so they couldn't put it together in their minds. All they were doing is taking arrows of truth and then Isaiah would shoot his arrow out into the future and it would go out over the horizon and he could no longer see it anymore because it went into the future. And Ezekiel would do the same and Daniel and Hosea and Michael and Micah and they shot 300 arrows and all those arrows went over the horizon and they landed on one man, on Jesus of Nazareth. He is indeed the son of God. And this is what he explained to these disciples on the road to Emmaus. Let's pick up and continue the story. Verse 28. 
As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, and the day is almost over. It's been a long day of instruction. They wanted more. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Oh, there's so much here, and I love that. But, but I want to just point out, I, I love this thing that they say after, afterwards. Weren't our hearts just burning within us as he opened our minds to the scripture, as he opened those scriptures to us? Now, this type of burning is not a bad thing. They weren't looking for Rolades. All right, this is a good thing. Their heart was overjoyed. Their heart was just spilling over. They had just encountered God and understood clearly for the first time the grand narrative, the big picture, the story that they were a part of. And it made sense. Everything in the world came into focus. In a moment, they knew the truth of God and the meaning for their lives, and their hearts were just bursting with joy. In one encounter, their mourning was changed and in an instant into unspeakable joy. Their confusion gave way to absolute clarity. The death of their dream was replaced with a grander, more glorious vision and purpose for their life. He revealed himself to the, uh, through the scriptures and their hearts came alive. I didn't know it at the time, I was too young, but this is what happened to me as a little nine-year-old boy in Mrs. Kruger's class. I experience that joy in my heart when God reveals himself to us through his word. I'm not sure where you're at this, uh, this day uh, on your journey of faith. Maybe you're on the high road and all the cylinders are functioning great and things are going great. If so, just continue that journey with Jesus. What a great place to be in life. But maybe you're more identifying with the disciples tonight. Maybe you're identifying that you're in a season of bitter disappointment and sadness and you're struggling and you're looking for perspective. You're looking to put it all together. And others that are here, you're just still not sure about all this Christianity stuff. And again, I'm glad you're here. Uh, bring your questions to God. All I know is wherever you're at, whatever road you're on, Jesus wants to meet you there. And he will. He wants to walk with you on your journey. He wants to take time to reveal himself to you, to indeed prove to you he is who he said he was, and you can have confidence and rock-solid faith. The good news is that experience that they had is available to you and to me today. Jesus said he'll give us his Holy Spirit, which will teach us his word, and just like he did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he'll do with us, if you'll listen. We have the entire scriptures available to us. Allow your day to be interrupted. Take a little time to listen and then get into that habit so that you can experience this thing that goes on in your heart as God reveals himself to you. There's a few suggestions I have of things you could do. The first one is keep doing what you're doing now. Keep coming to these weekend services. This is the year at Summit where we're going through the life of Jesus throughout this entire year. What a great way to learn what God's word has to say. Another thing that I think is just 
will be really happy if we can learn how to do this. If we can get in the habit of regularly carving, regularly carving out a little bit of time each day uh, to let God speak to us as we reflect on the scriptures. Now, one of the things we can, we've done to help you, because I know that can be intimidating, we have a gospel reading plan available to you on the website where we're taking the whole year to read through the four gospels, the four biographies, if you will, of Jesus that are in the New Testament. And you can jump in right now. It's not too late. And join with us as we continue on that journey throughout the year. What a great way to develop that habit. And another thing that you can do, you can join in with a group of others, because I just think learning about God's word in a small group context where people can ask questions and they can interact, they can learn from one another, that's just one of the most dynamic environments and ways to grow in learning God's word. And we do that through our Summit Connect groups here. And I'd love to talk to you about that afterwards, if that could be helpful. So as we close, let me just remind you, what Jesus did for these disciples on the road to Emmaus, he's still doing today. He reveals himself to anybody who'll stop and listen. And he'll speak to our needs through his scriptures. As he reveals that he's alive and that he longs to give us his grace, he longs to give us his forgiveness, he longs to draw us into his story so that we know who we are and we know where we're going. So that our hearts come alive the way he intended it to be when he created us. And he drew us back into relationship with himself. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for this chance to read this story and, uh, Lord, to just learn from uh, what we see going on in their lives. There's so much here that I know we can identify with. There's seasons in our lives, Lord, where we get confused, where we don't understand, where we just seem to be overwhelmed by the circumstances and we get to places sometimes in our lives where, where we just are lacking hope, we feel crushed. But God, I thank you that you're bigger than all of our difficulties, you're bigger than all of our sin. Your grace is sufficient for all things if we'll just turn to you, if we'll just stop and listen. If we'll open up our hearts, Lord, I'm convinced that you will just show yourself in ways that we could never even fathom. So my prayer is simple, Lord, that you would help each one of us stop listen, and to walk with you. And as we do, I know you'll do your thing. And Lord, it'll lead us to a place where our hearts will be alive. I commend each person here to you and the word of your grace, which is able to build them up. And I pray this in the powerful and the risen name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.